Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Josh Adams. Hello. Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Eric Berry. Hey, everybody, it's me! I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking to Chris McCord. Chris, do you want to say hi? Hello, glad to be here. <laughs> now, uh, people in the Elixir community probably need no introduction to you, but do you want to just uh, do one anyway? Let us know who you are, what, what you're famous for. Uh, sure. Yeah. So most folks will probably know me from uh, writing Phoenix. Uh, so I created Phoenix, which is a web framework for Elixir. Gotcha. And uh, and I gotta yeah. say, he's the author of the 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 Phoenix programming book, and he's the author of the metaprogramming Elixir book. So yeah, he. I'm sure a lot of people in the community know him. But uh, yeah, so we're we're thrilled to have you on today. Yeah, it's just not worth making the assumption. So yeah, now now the people who didn't know know. I'm I'm curious as we get started, you know, you created Phoenix and I, I kind of want to dive into that background, but there's an exciting new feature in Phoenix called Live View. Do you want to just give high level overview of what that is? Because I got like live page reloading, but it's not what you think it is kind of thing. That's about as far as I got. So. Sure. Yeah. And I think if we dive into kind of what got me started with the framework, it kind of is wrapped up in that uh, story. But yeah, the, Live view is essentially the React model applied on the server. So you have a stateful component. So we're just we're going to call, we're calling them views because today you have a Phoenix view, which is a pure function that just renders some HTML. So the idea is taking the React model of making uh, the view a stateful component, and it can react to uh, events happening on the client and also events happening on the backend platform. And we have we take the same model of React where if you update your state for any reason, your view re-renders itself and then the UI is updated. But the whole step of the UI being updated actually happens over the network. But the model, the mental model is the same. We just happen to have a network hop to go over. But uh, the goal is to, we don't have to write JavaScript to have uh, a lot of these uh, rich user experiences that we would normally uh, use a client-side framework for. I got to preface a little bit and let you know where I'm coming from. So I've been a Ruby developer for 10 plus years, moved over to Elixir. I know just enough Elixir to, to make a mess, but not enough to be able to, for example, integrate a, a front-end framework directly into Elixir. But now our applications get into a point where we really need to start thinking of how can we enhance the user experience? How can we make sure that we do have that rapid, not rapid, but like the high quality interactive experience within the application, but without introducing miles and miles and miles of, of technical overhead that seems to constantly follow the decision when you decide to say, okay, I'm going to split my application and have a back-end API-driven app and a front-end front end API slurping JavaScript app. Now, it does work for some people, but typically everybody that I've talked to doesn't do both sides. 
what when I watched this video of Live View, I was freaking out. I just couldn't believe what you're doing because Rails has done a pretty good job, right? So Rails came out, they they allow you to integrate a front-end framework into it. That's that's fine and dandy, but what they do have for them is they have turbo links, which is great, and they have their new stimulus which we've been using. I've been using both Turbolinks and Stimulus within the Phoenix application that we have. But what you're introducing is taking it to the next level and say, you know what? We're going to provide something similar to React, React-esque application development directly inside of Elixir. And then you can maintain the state in the server, which is incredible, but you still have those listeners on the front end that will update the uh, the components. And, and you also have page redirecting and all that stuff. Fantastic. Like, I'm so excited about this. So tell us, really, are you really glad you did it? I mean, it sounds like kind of a waste of time. <laughs> um, the, uh, the response has been really exciting. So, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of folks out there that feel the way, uh, the, just what Eric described. I think it resonated with a lot of people. Um, because I think Eric or myself, uh, I felt this pain over the last, I don't know, however long the, the client-side apps uh, have been around on scene, um, has just never been a pleasant experience for me and never felt like it, never, the complexity rarely felt like it was justified. So I worked, my entire pro- professional career, career has been at consultancies. So I've worked with a lot of different frameworks and a lot of client-side apps and a lot the majority of the projects, I turn around and think that this was just a enormous mistake because we could have just rendered on the server, shipped the product twice as fast. And so anyway, yeah, I think this resonated with a lot of people. So that's really exciting to me. And it's like just, you know, it's not even out yet and uh, we're just getting started. So I think the minimal viable product itself has people excited. So there's a lot we can do that I think people are going to freak out about. <laughs> Let's talk about the minimum viable product for those people who haven't seen the video. Explain to us what you can do right now. And you mentioned also that you're building this outside of Phoenix. It's actually something you can add to Phoenix, but it's not going to be Phoenix core. Right. So it's uh, just a separate dependency. Uh, so we built on top of Phoenix channels. Uh, so we're just using doc feeding our own real-time layer. And uh, the MVP that I showed, it, we're, we're starting small. So we're starting from known use cases that we know we can tackle really well and whether this is going to work really well for. So this is things like where you just want to have targeted bits of rich uh, UI. So one example I demoed was like client-side like validations. It's a perfect example where uh, today, if you want to provide a client-side validation experience, you have to bring in some JavaScript framework, figure out how to get the translations down. If you're doing internationalization, then you have to duplicate business logic on validation rules because you always have to validate on the server either way. Uh, so with Live View, you just take the HTML uh, server rendered HTML that you already wrote and you add like one line of code to the templates and then you move the controller code that you wrote into a Live View and make moderate changes and suddenly you have a, on every key press, you can have validations happening on the server and the client getting their real-time response. And uh, so that's one example. So others would be like, I didn't show, but I talked about like a progress bars would be perfect. So anytime you, let's say like, uh, like Eric mentioned, you have this app and you have, it's, you've written features around it and suddenly a requirement comes down where we want to make this uh, more interactive. We want to add some rich features here. Uh, so this would be perfect for those bits of uh, interaction. Like if you wanted to show something's being processed in the background, you're encoding a video in a data pipeline, you could show a progress bar of that just in a server rendered template and just have that listening on the back end to lifecycle events and updating a progress bar, any kind of like real-time dashboard, I think this would be perfect for. 
Uh, so there's a lot of things we can target out of the box with, I think, kind of these small bits of rich UI. And then we're going to try to grow that into, you know, how far can we go with this to where, you know, where's the line where, you know, you have to just write code on the client versus what can we get away with on the server? And we're trying to find that out. So I have to say, so you you announced this just kind of backing up a little bit. So this was part of your keynote presentation at the close of ElixirConf 2018 in Washington. And so that was like the close of the conference, right? And you kind of dropped this bombshell. And that was, that was fun. And I, I talked to you the day before and you kind of like said, well, this is what it's going to be about. And, and it's going to like, there's going to be these client, you know, gen servers on the back end and they can send state down to the clients over the web sockets. And I'll, I'll be honest, my first thought was, is this even a good idea? Is this like just totally kind of like, I don't know, misguided effort? And, but I thought, you know, I'm just like, Chris is a smart guy. I'm going to hold off on any like decisions or judgments. And I saw your presentation. So I just want to let any of our dear listeners know who might be kind of getting this first impression of what this is talking about. It's like, you need to go watch the video. And because that's where you get, to, you, you know, you kind of build up your story, your case of like where this even came from. Like how this, uh, your, your history with what you wanted with web development and how you got here. And like now with the features that have already been built into a Phoenix, you have the capability of doing this now. And so I, I just want to encourage people, we will definitely link to this in the show notes, but you need to watch the video to, to reserve judgment. If you're feeling some skepticism about like, ah, this sounds kind of crazy. Just you got to go watch it. Okay. So yeah, I just want to get that in there early part. Yeah. I'll second that hard. That's uh, very true. I, I guess where I'm getting stuck on it, because no, I haven't seen the video, is just, you know, I'm so used to doing this with JavaScript. So how do you do it without JavaScript? I mean, don't you need something on the front end to at least... It sounds like it's uh, sending data up and down a WebSocket and doing fancy stuff from there. Do there you need are, something on the front end? There yeah, are, we... There are pixies and sparkles, like... <laughs> I'm telling you, Chris is like breathing sparkles into this thing. And all you have to do is bring in the sparkles. That is the magic. No job. I'm telling you, you got to try it. It's incredible. There's a small <laughs> amount of JavaScript that we wrote. So you didn't have to write any JavaScript. But yeah, it's nice because we're, we're piggybacking off of the channel layer. So the channel PhoenixJS is included. And that gives us uh-huh. the bidirectional communication with the server. So then... We just write a small amount of JavaScript to listen to these different client bindings and listen for updates from the server to patch the DOM. So there's very little, yeah, there's no JavaScript you have to write today. And we're trying to figure out how can we, how far can we push it? Like, for example, even if you wanted to do like loading states, I think at some level, you'll have to provide an escape hash for folks that want to write JavaScript. If you want to do like, you know, fade ins and whatnot, but I think we can do quite a bit just on the server. So one of the questions I had when, you know, thinking about this after kind of watching it and thinking about it more and talking about it with other people. So is there like, you know, the React equivalent of a shadow DOM, does that live on the server in the gen server where it's rendering and then kind of diffing there? Or is there some of that happening on the client side too? So the diffing, uh, we're only diffing on the client with a library called Morph DOM. And they don't use a shadow DOM or virtual DOM. Uh, they just do a diff uh, with the DOM itself. And there's, so there isn't actually, there's no VDOM needed to do a DOM diff. So we just give it a fragment of HTML and it, it diffs it. On the server, we are not doing any diffing yet. So my approach, uh, I talk about this in the 
you know, I take the approach of like, I make it work well enough that it, it works decently well. And then I figure out how to optimize it. So we saw that with the Phoenix channel layer, you know, we shipped one Oh with, and it supported, ended up supporting 30,000 concurrent users. And then we released Phoenix 1.1 with it supported 2 million users on a single server with like 10 lines of code change. So, um, so I'm not saying that we're ignoring optimization, but today we render the whole template on the server and we're exploring different ways of how do we, how can we do a diff on the server? So we're only sending minimal updates. So I don't know if that is going to end up being a shadow down on the server. Uh, what we're talking about now is it was more of, um, Jeff and I were talking about more of isolating just the dynamic and static parts of the page and only ever sending the dynamic parts down because the first render will always have the static parts that never change. So anyway, I, this is a long answer, but we want to stay within EEX, which is my personal goal, uh, as much as possible, uh, just because I, I want the story to be, we do what we were doing, and now we can add it in a live view and it's interactive. I don't want folks to have to go use a separate templating language. Uh, which would allow us to do more sophisticated uh, diffing, but uh, we're still exploring those optimizations. Who else is doing this right now? Yeah, so there's been a number of efforts in the Elixir community. Uh, we have a library called Drab that is exploring similar ideas. At ElixirConf, uh, there was a library announced called Texas, which is doing, I believe, some virtual DOM diffing on the, uh, they have like text templates that are just EEX, but um, there's a text engine that parses them. And um, so they have a similar idea for the optimizations. And then um, we've seen other efforts like in, in Ruby, there was a framework called Volt. If anyone remembers Volt oh, yeah. 2014, I, think, I don't know if they're around anymore. And then um, I started a library called Sync for real-time Rails partials in 2013. Uh, so that was kind of my first exploration into this idea. And uh, we mentioned how you know things got started. That's essentially what led me into Phoenix was I was exploring this idea of how can I get a real-time application going without ditching uh, server-side rendering, which I'm productive with and I love, but I was increasingly, increasingly our clients wanted richer interaction. So I was like, I was exploring how I can get that on the server. And uh, that's where I wrote a library called Sync. And um, the demo for Sync was impressive. I did a screencast. I think it made Hacker News. And it worked, it demoed well, but it didn't scale well, and it was really uh, fragile. So that's kind of what led me to looking around into different languages. And, and I found Elixir, and it was just a small matter of writing a web framework and a real-time layer and a distributed <laughs> pub-sub system. And, and now we're ready, <laughs> we're ready to, to tackle it. <laughs> so the original dream, just to have a few milestones along the way. Yeah, a couple, yeah. <laughs> a couple things. <laughs> so really, like Phoenix was just a stepping stone to your real goal, which is this live view. Yeah, it's actually funny. Yeah, so I, I, I always have to, be, have to be very careful with how I talk about JavaScript. And I think if, if folks who are casting judgment on this idea, please watch the talk and at least watch the talk so you can see my frame of reference for, you know, I'm not saying that you should never write JavaScript and this will replace everything and, and save you from implementing client code. You know, this is going to be a targeted at specific use cases that work well. Um, but having said that, I, I did see a tweet. Someone said like, I forgot, I'm going to botch it, but they were like uh, Chris McCord versus the JavaScript frameworks is the war that I didn't know existed, but I can't wait to see or something like that. Uh, so it's funny. Yeah. So it's, for years I've had this idea of, I, I want to, stay on in the server land the right rich applications it's just taken a while to get the the underlying pieces to actually accomplish that so it's it's um, fun to I, me that your path 
from a working demo but not scalable to scalable thing was, you know, crowded the way it did. It was like, it seems like maybe it would have been less effort to get there with Ruby, but having done that sort of thing, it's not really. You mean uh, less effort as far as getting Ruby to it, it scale? Took you, yeah, it took you less effort to build Phoenix than it, you felt like it would have to, uh, to scale Ruby, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I and it was way Ruby. less effort. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, been it's I'm, been too easy to scale Phoenix, honestly. Like I, uh, it blows me away that's <laughs> what what the initial first best effort gets you. I'll bet you wake up and your pants just attach themselves to you. You don't even need to put your pants on one leg. <laughs> just stand up and somehow they magically just go right up your legs. I'm pretty certain. Well, what are, what are pants? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I work remotely, so I'm not uh, not sure. What well, it's yeah, it's four, <laughs> it's five p.m. Uh, local time for me. I'm in pajama pants, so. <laughs> but you didn't pull them up, did you? They just crawled up you. <laughs> you can't Dude. lie to me, man. <laughs> so yeah, I just got weird in a hurry. <laughs> so back on to uh, you know non clothing. Uh, but uh, I, I did. I know you've got a lot going on right now, and, and so I'm, I know one of the questions I'm sure you get a lot is, "When can we expect to see this?" And you, you kind of you you, you laid, laid that out there in the your your presentation where you said Phoenix One Four release has to come first. You know that's your number one priority, and pairing with that, you're working on your new Phoenix book for the One Four release, and that's uh, available as a beta right now. So and then. While that's going on, you've got this other project you're starting to pull out of Phoenix called FireNest, which is for helping build distributed applications. So it sounds like you've just got a, a couple things you're kind of doing right now. Like, I mean, how are you how are you doing all of this? Right, that's a lot to prioritize. You know, like where where are you going? Well, so you know, I have to plug uh, Dockyard for sponsoring my work. So I work almost full time on uh, Phoenix and this related Phoenix projects. So I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. I think I would have flamed out after Phoenix 1.0 for sure. Um, so I, I, I shipped Phoenix 1.0, you know, on my own time, working full time. And I wasn't on a sustainable path. Uh, definitely, I think I would have, <laughs> I'd be, you know, on a farm somewhere completely disconnected from technology if I had continued that. Uh, so yeah, Dockyard supports me. Uh, three quarters of my time is spent on Phoenix, um, and that's you know totally my own at my own discretion. So you know if uh, it, whether it's Firenest, Live View, the book, um, you know they're happy. Whatever it helps the community is is good for Dockyard and good for me. So uh, that's how I do it without <laughs> completely flaming out. And um, yeah, right now the like you mentioned, getting Phoenix one four out is. The RC is top priority. Um, the Phoenix book has been like over a year delayed. So I really need to focus on that before I really get into the live view heavily. But it's always a battle because writing books is a love-hate process. And it's been a lot of hate this time around and love for me. Just because, you know, it's hard when you want to work on exciting things. Like, you know, live view is really exciting. The Fire Nest project, breaking Phoenix pubs up into smaller pieces for me is really exciting. I mean, kind of like, you know, the future, the things that we want to build towards. But the book is also extremely important for the community and having a, you know, first class resource. Uh, so I'm, I balance those things, I think, week to week where, you know, it's can't, I can't context switch day to day. So some, some weeks it's more 
code with the framework and some weeks it's just head down heads down trying to get a new chapter out for the book i'm a big fan of brian cartarella and everything that they do and i remember seeing him talk at the uh, 2014 ember conf and yeah that whole team i think you've got several uh well actually you've got i want to say i can't remember his name he's also on the ember core team that works with you right i think we uh you may be thinking of rob but uh rob is he moved he's on. Been for i think a couple of years okay yeah it's been a while but uh so i i, I gotta ask you I'm, I'm i'm more of a ruby developer less of an elixir developer this thing that you're introducing is actually making me lean more towards elixir overall because it's providing what i think really comes out of the box that other other frameworks aren't providing but i gotta ask you just because i got you here what's like your least favorite thing about phoenix <laughs> interesting uh, no i've never been asked that <laughs> you heard it you heard it here first well eric's just yeah well unique Come on. no that's a good question <laughs> i have to think about this so my least favorite thing it's like the thing that bothers me the most right yes I'm trying to think so there's not there's like as far as things that we've shipped i don't have any huge regrets about like you know stuff we can't change because we don't want to break things so i'm trying to think what would be bothers me the most maybe configuration which doesn't really bother me that much but I mean, this is a whole can of worms but like the, there's been a lot of configuration discussion in the community and um about having uh electric configuration with mix also work for equally well for releases and this is a whole conversation which we shouldn't go into because whole podcasts have been talked about over the subject but the so the irritation with the framework recently with all this discussion is we're trying to push more configuration to runtime and away from compile time. And it turns out Phoenix has a ton of compile time configuration. So if I had any big mistake, it would have been making too much compile time configuration. Although we do need compile time configuration. So some folks think that we just uh, overdid it with compile time configuration, but uh, we do a lot of code generation. So some things necessarily need to be compiled time. So I think, that's been, I think, a recent thing that may require some, I think it will be too user-facing with it. Anyway, that's been something that's been a, a problem. Um, even though personally, I don't have any issues with handling releases in our current configuration, but uh, we do have a couple hacks in there. So that's probably the uh, best answer I can give. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash elixir. It, it's hard to point out ugly factors of your baby. <laughs> That's true. He has, she has her mom's nose. There you go. You can... <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your relationship with Dockyard and they are supporting you in this role. And I, I know, so what kind of, what's your role with helping Dockyard? Because I know you probably advise or, or consult in some capacity. What's that responsibility like? Yeah, so, I mean, the uh, I'm a cheerleader for the company, you know, more or less, uh, which I'm happy to do. So 75% of my time, so 
however many weeks of, of that year is 75%. Um, I'm on Phoenix work and then 13 weeks of the year. So about 25% of my time, I, I bill on client work. So I do work 13 weeks of the year directly as a, in a consulting role, uh, which I actually prefer because it's nice to, you know, if, if I'm just building a framework, then uh, I think I would lose touch with, you know, you, you need to be solving real world problems and be more than just shipping features because otherwise I'd lose touch with actually solving real problems. So yeah, so apart from when I'm billing, I'm usually in like an architecture role where I'll come in um, usually shorter term to kind of help bootstrap a project or help get, make sure a project that's existing project is done well or help it optimize it if they're having problems. And then throughout the rest of the time, I'm not in a cave. So I help, I help the team if, as needed. So they lean on me if they have questions and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a good mix for me for staying in touch with users of the framework and actually, you know, writing uh, Luxor code with the framework, not just writing framework code. Yeah, so I, I have one question then that I've wondered about, like in the Phoenix book, you talk about umbrella projects, you show how Phoenix can be used in an umbrella project. I was just curious with your relationship as with these clients, what are the kind of guidelines that you use in deciding when you would suggest an umbrella project for a company or not? Like kind of, what's your thought process there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think about it uh, operationally versus code organization. So I think a lot of projects that we see that come in that are umbrella applications uh, are split up like you would, the way they're split up as an umbrella app should have just been like lib and then a directory in lib of one app. Only because I think about it from from the OTP application standpoint, uh, those are applications that are started and stopped on their own. So for me, if if you're making multiple umbrella applications that really, you know, three of them have to run together or they don't work, then it doesn't make sense to keep them separate. So I'll do it from an operational standpoint if they should be started and stopped together or if I know that I'm going to eventually want to, you know, if, if we scale out this service, I want to deploy this one app or part of the code base on a node because it's doing heavy calculations, you know, on the web front end nodes and the other apps in the project don't require, you know, shouldn't be, shouldn't be uh, on the server that's, you know, going CPU bound. So that's how I make those decisions. It's not so much code structure. So I'm not saying if you can deploy things together, just throw everything in one app, but it's mostly from a operate operational standpoint and not a uh, code structure standpoint. I'm I'm a little curious. You mentioned that uh, sort of the origin of Phoenix and your philosophies around Phoenix have led you toward things like LiveView. And I was wondering if you could give us just a short history of Phoenix, you know, why you created it, what the philosophy is, and then how LiveView fits in with what your uh, overall vision for what Phoenix is and what it isn't and how that all ties together. Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned in 2013 is when I wrote that sync library. And at the time, I uh, at the time I wanted to... Yeah, so actually, actually, I'll drop this tidbit. I've been, I haven't wanted to make a, uh, so you guys can get exclusive access to this information. Um, I haven't wanted to troll, uh, like I said, uh, wow, this is, a, this is a loaded answer. So I was in love with Ruby in 2013, and I thought for the foreseeable future of my professional career, that's what I was going to be doing. So let me preface it with that. And loved what I was doing, except when it came to these uh, real-time like applications. Right. And in 2013, 
client apps. Well, when we had client frameworks getting more and more ubiquitous and people were going for more uh, real-time interaction. So I was trying to solve that and Ruby and was running into walls, but I was still in love with what I was doing day to day. And um, the, the tidbit of information was, uh, I think that year I'd have to go check. I applied at 37 Signals, which is now Basecamp. Mm-hmm. to work there. And uh, that was going to be the, in my mind, the pinnacle of my career, like as high as I could go, you know, to work uh, with creators of Rails, with, with DHH. And, and don't get me wrong, the, the company culture there is fantastic. So it would have been a, a fantastic place to work. But for me, I applied thinking like this is as high as I could go. This would be like, you know, dream job. So unfortunately, they found someone better than me. So I have an email from DHH politely uh, saying they found someone else. But so anyway, that's the tidbit is that the joke could be that DHH is the true creator of Phoenix because had they hired me, <laughs> I uh, wouldn't have created Phoenix. Um, so you heard it here first. <laughs> but um, so anyway, I went from, so that's all to say that I really love what I was doing in Ruby. And so it wasn't like I was just looking around for to play with another language. You know, it wasn't even on my radar initially in 2013 to even think about doing something else professionally, um, especially because I, I was a PHP developer before getting into Ruby. And my my wife used to call me like I, I would be coding grumpy at the end of the, the day. And she noticed that actual change in my happiness uh, when I started uh, doing Ruby professionally at the end of the day. So it was interesting, like she actually noticed a change. Instead of coming home irritated, I'd, I'd be in a good mood. <laughs> so anyway, I love Ruby, but when it came to these real-time applications, there wasn't a good story there. And when I tried to experiment with how can I make this a good story and explore the server time, server rendered real-time apps, is when it was clear that like the concurrency model just wasn't going to work. I mentioned in my talk to get sync to work, I had to uh, use an event machine, which is an event loop in Ruby. So mm-hmm. it's like. So like we're borrowing JavaScript's concurrency model and re-implemented in Ruby, which is should be a red flag already. Okay, so I so not so I couldn't I couldn't block the main Ruby thread. So I was having to do like broadcasts in an event loop thread, and then sometimes that thread would die. I have no idea why. So then I was having having to do like an instance variable set against the event machine to tell it, hey, you're actually dead, but you don't know it. So that was when I really started thinking like, okay, like there's a concurrency issue here. And I had never been into languages uh like I mostly coded in single threaded languages, but I knew like, okay, like we're using an event loop top of threads and the threads are dying. So I knew that clearly I had to start looking into concurrent languages and see how I can maybe get the experience that I love from Ruby and Rails, but on something that's going to scale. So that's when I started looking around into different languages and it wasn't just like BAM, Elixir. Like I think, you know, people hate on Elixir because Ruby has just come over and adopted it because it looks the same. I feel like that's a stigma. Um, but it wasn't just, I saw Elixir and I was like, oh, this looks like Ruby. I actually, I tried Go first uh, and then I tried Rust. And those are both like a couple week false starts that just didn't uh, clip for me. And uh, then I read up on Erlang and how uh, WhatsApp was using Erlang at scale, like 10 million users per server. And I was thinking like, ah, oh, I want millions of users per server. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's this? What do they do? What's this Erlang thing? And that's where then I remembered a prominent figure from the Ruby community, uh, Jose Vilim, had gone off and started his own language on the Erlang VM. And, um, you know, a Google search later, I was on the Elixir Lang org homepage and then just started tinkering with it. So that's kind of the, the genesis of Phoenix. And then once I kind of landed on this being like, oh, yeah, I, 
I have to write web applications in this. I remember telling my coworkers when I was doing Ruby, like, I'm going to build everything in this, all, all, all web applications. I just, I just need a, a framework first. And I thought I was crazy, but you know, that was the genesis of it all. And I kind of, you know, it was, mo- it was on the promise of we can accomplish these scalable apps, but in the same kind of productive atmosphere I'm used to. And it's, it's all, and it's lived up to that. So I, I kind of went into it on faith that it was going to scale and that I'd be able to write code and have millions of users on one server, but it was always, you know, it was, it was on faith that it, it could work. And then we, with Phoenix 1.1, we, we proved that we could, could actually do that. So it's been a crazy uh, ride. I don't know if that answered the question. That was a long, long answer, but hopefully that answers it. Yeah, that, that partially gets me there. So it was mostly about the scaling. But yeah, I've seen one thing that got me really excited, mainly because I've tried playing with Socket.io and then I wanted to go cause myself harm. And then I came back and played with Socket.io a little bit more and then gave up on uh, uh, WebSockets with JavaScript. And then they came around with Action Cable and Action Cable's a little bit less of a pain, I guess, is the best way I could put it. And, you know, Channels just seems like it's a natural fit with the rest of Phoenix. And it's what you're using now to do the live view. So, so how does this tie back to what you were hoping to get out of Phoenix with the concurrency? Yeah, so the concurrency model, I mean, we get we get so much for free from the platform, like whether it's mm-hmm. our concurrency model and our distribution model. So it's, you know, even if other languages, like, you know, if we had a, a Rust or Go web framework with a WebSocket layer, uh, like someone wrote a blog post actually comparing Phoenix channels and a Go implementation, but, and then the Go is faster at broadcast, but what people don't realize is like, well, you put, you deploy Phoenix on a cluster of 10 nodes, those messages that you send over the, you broadcast on the WebSocket is going to reach all 10 nodes. So uh, we get distribution out of the box and scalability wise, like that was what I, I meant by like the, the promise of scalability, like the concurrency mm-hmm. model is these small lightweight processes. Right. And that means every WebSocket connection is just going to be the small lightweight process. So I went in with the mindset of like, if I just take advantage of the features of the platform, it should be quote unquote easy to um, provide like easy to use abstractions on top. Um, so the 2 million users on one server that we achieved, like not, I don't really pat myself on the back for that. Like it took a lot of work, but it wasn't, I didn't have to implement anything crazy, you know, to drop down to C code or be a, a wizard with, with uh, code, it was just I followed the primitives that were there, and with minimal testing and tweaking, it you know scaled to millions of users. So the scaling story, um, like I said, other than it works and it scales crazy well, there wasn't a whole lot we had to do to make it work, other than follow what the platform gave us. If, it turns out Erlang is good. Yeah, it turns out all along. Yeah, Josh. It turns out, yeah, they've just been sitting on this uh, amazing technology and quietly using it by the outside world. Well, I think we had to wait some time before the web got to the point where it was like, okay, this concurrency actually really matters because we're building apps that are doing a lot of different things at the same time. And yeah, it's, it's interesting though, because I think Erlang could have eaten the world in... Uh, the mid 2000s you know you even think about websockets not being around like we support long polling as a fallback but it's the same it's the same model on the server like you don't know that you're using long polling necessarily i mean i maintain this is because parse transforms are way harder than macros and elixir yeah i mean yeah there's there are certainly other reasons but it's just interesting that you know there could have been a you could theoretically have implemented a live view and a channel layer 
in the mid two thousands with long polling, uh, with Erling, it would have been like nothing in town would have been able to compete. It's just, didn't happen. Yep. I got a question that it's not related to LiveView at all. Right now, one of the great things, like I mentioned about Rails, is being able to integrate Webpack into it, integrate a front-end framework where it's actually kind of a native. There's a path to doing it instead of let's just blow away our static file and replace everything in the assets folder and, and compile it in. Is there anything like that on the uh, docket to to build for Phoenix? Are you talking about is there like a asset pipeline in Rails or is there some kind of integration with Webpacker. Yeah, what I'm asking is there is Webpacker for Rails. I wonder if there's ever going to be like a Webpacker for Phoenix. No, so no is the answer. There, so the Phoenix generators will give you an out of the box experience with Webpack. We use we use Brunch historically, but Phoenix 1.4 will include Webpack, but only in the vein of we include an out of the box experience that will give you a compiled app. JS and compiled app CSS. So, right. you know, if you put JavaScript in the JS folder, CSS in the CS folder, and images in the asset the images folder, they just it just works how you would expect. Um, but we don't have any integration beyond that, and that's by design. So that lets someone bring in, you know, whether it's Gulp, Grunt, Brunch, Webpack, whatever. There's a new one. I forget the name. It's good. I don't know. So, yeah, the goal is make it pluggable, but we do have the out of the box. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to really know Webpack and it will just work. And then the moment you want to customize, you just follow the Webpack docs or pick another tool. So, the, I mean, there's so much. It's just, for me, it's unavoidable. Like Rails used to have the asset pipeline or maybe they still do. But unless we want to re-implement every major node package in Elixir, there's just no point to wrap anything because it's ultimately going to require Node.js to be installed anyway. So that's at least my take on it. You know, it's it's interesting. I think the other one you're trying to think of is Parcel.js. Um, yeah, Parcel, yep. But yeah, I think it's interesting and I kind of go back and forth on the, with this on my own because when I'm building a Rails app or an, a Phoenix app, to some degree, I don't really want to bother with the JavaScript. And so I like the idea of something like Webpacker. But the flip side is, is that all of these things have been solved really, really, really well in Node. And so I also like the approach since I'm comfortable enough with JavaScript. Of course, I play with everything, so maybe I'm weird. But I, I just look at it and go, okay, well, I'll just have to figure out Webpack or I'll just have to figure out Brunch. Like I, I've been uh, playing with an app and I wanted to build in some Vue.js. And so I just figured out how to do it in Brunch. And so I didn't have to go figure out the Elixir way of doing it. I just had to figure out the Brunch way of doing it because that's what's there. And, you know, that problem's already been solved. So why make me solve it the Elixir way instead? I don't know. I, I keep going back and forth because in some ways, yeah, as a backend developer, I may not want to fuss with it. But yeah, anyway, you get, you get what I'm saying. So, uh, A couple of other questions around uh, live view. One regarding the data, uh, the way the data is being stored. I know that at least from, from the video that I watched, what seems to be happening is that the data is stored and pulled from from reads and writes. Is there any uh, way to store like transient data that will uh, be able to be held on throughout multiple multiple uh, uh, pages? Yeah, so there's no way, built-in way to do that. So this is, I think someone asked me a similar question at the end of the talk. And it sounds like, if you're not familiar with Elixir, this is gonna sound like a cop-out answer, but it's actually a feature in my opinion. And maybe Joshua will agree with me, but the nice thing about this, because I thought about these things and it, the live views are just regular Elixir processes. So it's a gen server underneath. But the, so my answer is going to be, you would handle this 
state pass off the same exact way you would handle it in any other system that you're building in Elixir. So we wouldn't need to have some kind of session because they're just processes. So if you want to have any kind of durable or semi-durable state across processes, you would use existing tooling that you would use already, whether that's putting it into you know, some kind of Erlang term storage or Amnesia or another storage solution. So it's there that you can do it, but we're not going to provide it built in a way because it's not, I think, our problem to solve, if that makes sense. Yep. Yes. Yep. So the question I have is the facility for explicitly, I mean, I know this is, this is just a channel anyway, but the facilities that you build around the live view, are any of them valid for uh, somebody that just wants to connect some, some process and, and get some benefit or, or all of them just explicitly HTML related? So like if I wanted to connect some JavaScript process to a live view, is that a reasonable thing or is that just, hey, dog, use channels? Yeah, I would say, hey, dog, use channels. Um, yeah. Only because I, I don't know, we'd have to provide some primitive where you would return like strings of JavaScript to be eval'd. And in that case, you could just write a channel that push JS and then it would be like one line of JavaScript to eval. Yeah. So I don't know that we could provide much on top of that to... Well, I guess here I'm... I guess here I'm thinking about the fact that, hey, I landed on a page and now I have a channel to something that can send me data, whether or not it were HTML. And I guess that's just wire up your channel and you're done. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that's where channels are great for like yep. JavaScript applications. Uh, so we have a fantastic story if you are using a client-side framework and that's over just normal channels. The other question I had was around the way LiveView worked. Now, as I understand it again, what we're doing, what we'd be doing is actually building up our, our essentially our controller logic within the live view and not in a controller. Is that absolutely depend, dependent on there being a JavaScript connection? And if so, what happens to those developers who don't have JavaScript enabled? Or are we, are, are we to the point where that's really not an issue anymore? Yeah, this is a, so my, so here's my, my answer to that. Um, if you are targeting the case where JavaScript is disabled, then return server rendered HTML from controllers. We have a great story for that. Um, so I'm not targeting this feature with the mindset that we should work with JavaScript disabled because we already have an answer for that. It's like just return HTML. Um, having said that, we, we do just return HTML to the client. So if they had JavaScript disabled and they loaded one of these pages, they would get HTML back, but it wouldn't get any of the updates coming over. So it's like, there's not going to be a fallback story, but they will, they won't end up with a blank page. It won't be like the, you know, if you've ever visited single page applications, you, you won't be getting the angular error message hashes, hash HTML or blank pages but it, it will be broken. Um, and to me, that's fine. So it's like, if you have users that have JavaScript disabled, then don't present them with a live view. So what's coming next for Phoenix? I mean, we have live views. Are there other things that we should expect in 1.4, 1.5? I don't really have any big plans. Like all interesting things in Phoenix are happening outside of core. So that's like with the FireNest project and with live view. So at this stage, it's just going to be, you know, minor enhancements until some eventual 2.0, but that would just be kind of similar to Elixir. We don't have, you know, we've had quite a few deprecations since 1.0, but there's no like big thing I'm withholding for 2.0. You know, granted, if on a whim we get some, we admit something crazy to do, maybe we'll do it. But uh, most of the inter- interesting things are happening outside of core. So how is, how is FireNest coming along? Any, uh, anything interesting there? Any plans for when it might be out? Yeah, so it's been, um, we've had like, I wouldn't say steady progress, but we'll just, since we've had so much to juggle, we've had 
periodic progress. So one of the recent things that we've worked on this summer was, uh, I say we, I, I really mean uh, Jose and uh, Michal from the Electric Core team. Uh, they took a look at Phoenix Presence, which is like really called Phoenix Tracker underneath, and they figured out the smaller building blocks that I implemented. So I, so like I accidentally implemented four things in one, but they were able to piece out those four things. And one of the cool things to fall out of that is this uh, replicated state uh, behavior. So they were able to break presence into this replicated state idea. So, you know, Phoenix Presence replicates CRDTs, but they teased out a contract that you can implement anything that replicates any kind of state you want. So uh, one example is like a distributed rate limiter. They implemented that uh, with this idea in like 15 lines of code. Well, once these, you know, it's backed by other Elixir code, but if you wanted to implement a distributed rate limiter on top of this, it'd be like 15 lines of code. Oh, that's like awesome. a super hard problem. So that's uh, it's actually in a, a pull request on the Fireness repo. Folks want to check that out. So that's still really early. We're still exploring that, but um, there's been some encouraging developments uh, this summer around that. So I'm looking forward to see kind of where that where that's going. Awesome. That was basically exactly what I wanted to hear. Awesome. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution. Code badges. That's right. You heard me right. Basically, the idea is, is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. So I know uh, Phoenix 1.4 is like the change. I, I was looking at the change log today. And I think like what you were just saying there, how a lot of the new developments kind of happening outside in the community. And so I think that kind of follows what Jose was talking about, like with Elixir has a tiny core and then we're letting things kind of flourish in the community. And I think that's the same thing you're, you're doing with Phoenix, right? And yeah, I mean, um, you know, we have, we have these, the base now of like, we have channels presence and we're kind of making little distributed tooling pieces. Uh, so I think, you know, it's not so much for me personally, I think a lot of people would like to see channels broken out of the framework, but like, that's my baby. But um, so I think it's not so much about how can we have the smallest core possible? Uh, Cause I think, you know, a lot of people have this idea that Phoenix is heavy and uh, it's really not, it's actually a shockingly small project. I think for what most, most people are thinking, like if they actually went through the Phoenix source, I think they would no longer hold that judgment. Um, but it's really, I think like I tell, I tell people, I want the framework to have like the 80% use case that we all share. And then outside of that, the community can build on top of that or the Phoenix team themselves can build on top of those primitives in another Phoenix framework organization project, but not in core because not, you know, not everyone needs this live view feature and it can be built on top of the primitives we have. So there's no reason to, you know, shove it in core, but it's not just about how can we get the smallest uh, lines of code and because uh, there's we, you can go definitely too far in the other direction as we've seen in uh, the JavaScript community for example so um, especially from my point of view just maintaining a handful of projects is is ridiculous trying to get all the versions to, to play right so I'm, I'm definitely resisting the urge for just pulling things out just for the sake of someone saying that hey this could live separately yeah. I think it's great I think because I honestly think Phoenix feels like it's baked like it's it's really done 
And, you know, the 1.4 release isn't any huge new features. And it sounds like there's nothing that's, that you're viewing is really lacking uh, that needs to be addressed. And like I was talking with some coworkers and it's like, I, I, I can do everything I need to do with Phoenix as it is. It's extensible. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's done. And I, I think it's exciting. And I, so I'm looking forward to these kinds of things like live view that are additions or, you know, kind of plugins or add-ons that you can put on the outside of it and just kind of build on top of it. So, yeah. So thank you for coming on and sharing that with us. I think it's awesome. Yeah, no problem. So if people want to stay on top of what's going on with Phoenix or whatever you're working on these days, are there good places for them to find you online? Yeah. Uh, Chris underscore McCord on Twitter uh, and then Slack and IRC. Elixir Slack, Elixir IRC pretty much am always around. So um, those are us- those remain the best places to have uh, immediate access to help. So happy to chat with people on there. Awesome. Can I, can I slip in one quick question as well before we uh, move on? So I have, I have a question. Are you or is anyone on the Phoenix core team working with the Elm folks? I know there was discussion of Elm 1.9 WebSockets and having explicit sort of Phoenix channel support. Yeah, so there hasn't been a lot of movement there. I mean, we were definitely in close contact uh, with, say, I'm not going to say the Elm core team, but you know, I was talking, this was over a couple of years ago now, we were talking with Evan about how can we make a good story here. And I know um, Jason on the Phoenix core team, he's actually pretty heavy into Elm. And he's explored using channels with, with Elm's uh, built-in WebSocket client. But I think uh, there's still some work to be done there. And I know, especially around Elm's WebSocket client, I believe there's still, I, I believe there, and Josh, you could correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong. I, as far as I was aware, the WebSocket driver had some things that could be better. So I think we're kind of waiting on that story yeah, so, to improve. So that was the case in, in .18, specifically around reconnects uh, and a few other things, I think. But um yeah, so I, I don't think the new .19 one has come out yet. I was just trying to see if there was any any underlying discussion, but no. Yeah, so like I said, Jason's still heavy into it. So um, from my side, Elm's always been on my radar, but I've just never, never been able to get into it. And uh, for the foreseeable future, I don't think I'm going to be able to, uh, to take a deep dive, but I think we do have people on the inside, so to speak, that kind of are in love with it. So, so maybe there'll be something. Okay, I'll badger Jason. Sounds good. All right, I'm going to push us to picks. Uh, we have a little bit of a time constraint here. Eric, looks like you've already posted a pick to the the chat channel. Do you want to go first? Yeah, it's a pick that I've that I really enjoy. When I when I, the, uh, listeners can't see Chris, but right behind him is this photo, a very very famous photo. I think they call it the sunrise of the Earth or something like that. Earthrise. Earthrise. Yes, it was taken. Man, it was taken back in the, it was taken a long time ago. It was the very first time that uh, the Apollo, help me out here, Chris. <laughs> Is it Apollo 2? They, uh, yeah, so the I'm not, I forget which Apollo mission, but yeah, one of the Apollo command modules, yeah, snapped the photo. Yeah. So then they looked at it and they, were, and they were floating around the moon and they thought, wow, this moon is just ugly, horrible. And it was not super impressive, but when they looked and they saw the earth rising over the shadow, over the moon, it was just breathtaking. And uh, so that photo is really incredible, but 
I learned about it from This American Life, which is a podcast that I listen to all the time. Uh, I linked I linked the specific show to this one in there, but it's uh, it's probably uh, my second favorite podcast next to you know this one, of course. That's all I got. I went and looked at the Wikipedia page for that, and I, I love this line because uh, it it they uh, have like uh, four parts of the. Uh, it's a transcript of the audio recording and Anders says, oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the earth coming up. Well, that's pretty. And then uh, Borman says, hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. He's joking. And then Anders says, you got color film. You guys remember color film? Now I feel old. Anyway, so yeah. So they uh, they that, they took that picture. 1968. There it is. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, cool stuff. And I love geeking out about this space stuff. So Mark, do you have, Mark, do you have some pics for us? Yes, just something kind of what we've already talked about. So obviously, if you haven't seen the talk, you need to see the talk. And so that will be linked in there, uh, show notes. But also, I'm really looking forward to the Fire Nest project. Uh, as someone who's been building distributed pieces and dealing with some of the challenges there, it's like, oh, yeah, something easily that I can build on. Uh, so I'm excited about Fire Nest. So really just like if you're interested in building distributed applications and having building blocks, I just encourage people to kind of follow along. It's, it's still totally a work in progress. And, uh, but it's, it's early days, but you know, just kind of put a little uh, watch on the GitHub and be notified as stuff happens. And just it's something I'm looking forward to. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Okay, so I'm going to take the opportunity of, of Chris being here and consequently lots of people listening to, to shill and, and mention my website, which is smoothterminal.com. And we do developer newsletter, and uh, we have in October uh, a series on sort of end-to-end GraphQL coming out. Anyway, so that's my shilling, and I'm done. Awesome. So in honor of Eric, I actually did a Google search for uh, self-fastening pants. The closest I found was a Velcro fly. So I'm going to pick Velcro flies. And why isn't this more of a thing? I'm also going to pick... So I've been working on this How to Get a Job book. And I, I, I actually wrote 5,000 words in it yesterday which I'm feeling pretty good about, pretty smug about because I talk to people and they're like, holy crap. But anyway, I've been using softcover.io, which is a system put together by Michael Hartle. If you're familiar with uh, Ruby on Rails tutorial and all the stuff he's done over there, he built his own system to build books. And I'm, I'm really, really liking it. I've had to go in and tweak a few things, but it is exceptionally easy to tweak stuff. You know, for your EPUBs and Mobis and PDFs, you just go and tweak the styling for the different uh, types of outputs. It's really easy. You have to write in Markdown, which shouldn't be too terribly hard for developers to pick up since we do most of our readme's in Markdown. And uh, yeah, like the, the setup, you have to go install some dependencies, but then it just mostly just works. So anyway, super happy with that. And then one other thing is uh, I have this docking station for my laptop. And an update on High Sierra, macOS High Sierra broke the driver. And so, and it does three, three monitors. And so I, I basically used up all my dongles <laughs> to plug each monitor into each USB-C slot. So I just upgraded to the beta of uh, macOS Mojave. And I'm pretty happy with it. It's, it's pretty nice. It's got a few nice features to it. It's supposed to come out in a couple of weeks, but uh, I've been using it. And so far, I'm pretty happy with it. So I'm going to pick that as well. Chris, do you have some picks for us? I think you guys have have them all pretty much covered. Uh, so yeah, just phoenixframework.org for the listeners that haven't really known or followed Elixir or Phoenix. Uh, check it out. Maybe I can give you one. Give one for you. Your phoenixframework.org book link. 
where people can buy the book. Early. It also works. Yeah, Mark is my uh, my marketing uh, professional over here. And, so I appreciate and that's it. just that's just slash book, right? Yeah, slash PhoenixRiverOrg slash book will redirect to Prague Prague's page. Awesome. I'll keep, I'll keep being your hype man. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I actually bought the book this week. That's why I knew the URL. Thank you. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Chris. And thanks everyone else for coming on kind of a different schedule for recording. Not that our listeners will know, I guess, because we'll just release this in the regular schedule. But uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with more Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.